Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello there, Al Murray here. I'd just like to take a moment of your time to tell you all about an incredible, exciting new book. Um, The Last Hundred Years, Give or Take and All That by me, Al Murray. A journey, a misremembered journey through the 20th century. Now, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Sellers and Yateman's epic classic comedy history book, 1066 and all that. Well, I certainly am. And when I was asked to write this book, I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. But what I've made sure I haven't done is tried to pastiche their style or do a book their way, because basically that would be impossible. And also I'm slightly big headed enough to think, well, I'll put it through my own comedy grinder, my humorous outlook. We've got a little extract for you, though, today Um, for We Have Ways listeners. The middle section of the book, although it's got some gags in it, may sound slightly familiar. Um, Maybe uh, some of the things that James Holland and I have spoken about along the way. This book's out now. It's $14.99, although you know what it's like these days. That's what it says on the the, uh, sleeve, but it's probably not that much. It's published with Quercus. It's, It's out now. It's in all good bookshops. And on Amazon, it's incomplete, it's biased, and it's only really got the stuff in it I was particularly interested in. (laughs) I hope you enjoy. Here's a short extract about the Battle of Britain. Most critical event of all, number four. Britain holds on. After eight months of twiddling thumbs on the Western Front, a general sense of Allied torpor and a botched attempt to keep Norway out of German hands, It all kicked off properly on the 10th of May 1940 when the Germans invaded France and the Lowlands. Put simply, they organised most of their tanks into one single punch which came through the Ardennes forest that the French had decided were impassable to tanks. Impossible, they said. They're impassable. The Germans had chosen to try to invade France at Sedan, coming down from the high ground where the last two German invasions of France had entered the country. The French had built a thing called the Maginot Line, an impressive, super expensive, high-tech defensive zone to keep the Germans out, just not where they usually invaded from. Within six weeks, the British had fled, getting out through Dunkirk and other French ports by the end of June, and with unseemly haste, if only because sticking around would have involved even deeper humiliation. The French government had fallen. Hitler took the French surrender in the same railway carriage that the Germans had signed the 1918 armistice in and danced a little jig. He visited Paris once, took some snaps, and then pondered his next move. Quiz. Answers to follow. 
A. Does this victory occur because Hitler is a military genius of a kind unprecedented in global history? B. Is this because the German army has invented a radical new technique called Blitzkrieg that is beyond the imaginings of other military men? C. Is this because the Allies haven't really taken things seriously enough and made every mistake the German planners could possibly hope for? Answers. A. No, definitely not. None of it was his idea. B. No, not really. Blitzkrieg was simply a nickname that stuck. C. Yes, absolutely. The Allies fell for the German feint through the Netherlands, then ignored reports that there were tanks in the Ardennes. Impossible. And because their communications were so old-fashioned, there was distrust of radio and telephones amongst the French brass. The French high command made orders today for tomorrow when they had no idea what had happened yesterday. The British army had an eye for the exit, and wisely so. If you attempted to answer yes to questions one and two, then we will be having words. Hitler, however, having taken this quiz in the weeks that followed, thought the answers were A. Yes, most definitely. In fact, this whole thing was my brilliant idea in the first place. And you have no idea how lucky you are to be working for someone like me, you ungrateful generals. Repeat until sweet cakes at 6pm, then switch to B. Yes, and because of this brilliant new technique, we are invincible. And anyway, they got the idea from me, the greatest warlord of all time. This through until 11pm, then the rest until 3 in the morning. C. This isn't hype. This isn't propaganda. I am a genius. The French and British ran like snivelling cowards for my army, inspired by my genius. You know who we should get stuck into next? The USSRRR. They may be allies at the moment, but crikey, I want to crack at them. They're corrupt and dissolute and Jewish Bolsheviks, etc. Repeat at nauseam. Enter Churchill, as played by Gary Oldman. However, in May 1940, the UK had a change at the top. Chamberlain, outfoxed by Hitler, and now out of office thanks to the disastrous Norway campaign, had been replaced by Winston Churchill. Churchill, 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 fight them on the beaches, Churchill, Churchill, Churchill. Churchill became PM the day the German attack in France began, but crucially, unlike Chamberlain, Churchill was energised by war, and the crisis as it emerged and the narrow range of options on offer suited him. By the end of May, when it was clear that France was finished and that the British Expeditionary Force, BEF, needed to get out of Europe, Churchill made his assessment of the situation. Britain and its empire and dominions would not and could not do a peace deal with the Germans. His foreign secretary, Lord Halifax, who had been an archipiezer, disagreed. Halifax had been one of the other candidates for PM, so he had to be taken seriously. The two of them duped it out in Cabinet, and finally on the 28th of May, Halifax conceded, They had a face-to-face conversation in the Rose Garden at 10 Downing Street. No one knows what was said, but my money is on Churchill having some embarrassing photos of Halifax. But that's because I'm from a squalid age with squalid, filthy, grubby ideas about everyone. It may have been that Churchill appeared to his sense of honour. Or some mucky pics. We will never know. Get down the National Archive and find those pictures. Darkest Hour Movie Quiz Special Question Did Churchill go on the tube and ask Londoners what they reckoned? Answer, no. This moment is the turning point of the war, and by goodness, I will argue with you until I'm blue in the face and then some about it. Not Dunkirk, not the Battle of Britain, not the Germans getting across the Sedan, not the halt order, look them up, we ain't got time. And I know what the young and fashionable think of Churchill, and frankly, it's hard to disagree with him when it comes to his views on race. But without him digging in his heels in May 1940, 
none of the rest of it follows. And you end up with Hitler dominating Europe rather than crashing and burning and trying to take everyone else down with him in inevitable disaster over the next five years. The Battle of Britain, 1940. As soon as the battle for France ended, with the British extracting themselves from France during late May and June and looking completely and utterly beaten, German attention switched to how to knock Britain out of the war once and for all. An invasion was not exactly planned but considered. It was codenamed Operation Sea Lion in an attempt to make it sound amphibious and threatening. But the truth was that despite what had just happened in France, between them the German Navy, Air Force and Army couldn't balance a ball on their nose and clap, no matter how many fish you threw at them. It was agreed that before any invasion could happen, the Royal Air Force would have to be defeated. And the Royal Navy too, but that's nowhere near as sexy as what happened next. The Battle of Britain is often portrayed as a titanic struggle between the plucky, little improvising RAF and the mighty, super-efficient German Luftwaffe 4 machine. And you know what? That's the story I'd rather tell about myself too. The few, boldly holding on in the face of the implacable Nazi war machine, mercilessly gripping the RAF in a vice-like attack that is only resisted because our chaps are better than their chaps. If that's the story I wanted to tell about myself, I'm not sure I could come up with anything better. Even the planes have groovy names, Spitfires and Hurricanes. But the Battle of Britain didn't really pan out like that. No matter how many times that story gets told, it doesn't make it true. Yes, the Luftwaffe was larger, but it hadn't been set up for the kind of battle the Battle of Britain turned out to be at all, whereas RAF Fighter Command had. Fighter Command had been designed for defending the UK from aerial attack, and it did it with ruthless British efficiency. It's not quite as good a story, is it? Far from being the model of Teutonic efficiency, German intelligence on the UK was really bad. Not patchy, not incomplete, just plain straight bad. First, they tried to knock out RAF airfields, but the Germans didn't know where they were, and the ones they did know about weren't necessarily fighter stations. Raid after raid delivered not much more than losses for the Luftwaffe and practice for fighter command. This is just ruining it. Hitler had been promised by the head of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Goering, that this battle would be over swiftly because he had the deadliest, most organised force on the planet, continue until snacks arrive, admire self in new uniform. Whereas in fact the Luftwaffe was recovering from losses over France, and a bomber and fighter escort system that didn't really exist. The sheer number of targets in the UK and the difficulty of how to prioritise them meant the Luftwaffe's force was always dispersed and less effective. Oh, this is getting annoying now. Fighter Command, however, had a home advantage. Oh, keep going, this is good. British planes had more time in the air to attack or be redirected at the enemy. RAF pilots, if they were shot down and uninjured, would be back on their base ready to fly again by tea time. Everyone else could land, refuel and rearm several times in a day if need be. German pilots had long flights, three-hour round trips, little time over the UK, and if they were shot down, might end up in the channel, captured, or if they were lucky, chased around by angry locals with pitchforks. Oh, I like that last bit. The Germans switched to bombing cities, most notably London. At the most, 300 bombers went into attack London. When the Allies got bombing later in the war, they'd often send a thousand planes with hundreds of tons of bombs to deliver to German cities. All right, you've made your point. Not sure the British bombing stuff is something to go on about, is it? All the while this is going on, the frankly enormous Royal Navy, like a very hungry crocodile, lay in wait, sharpening its teeth, hoping against hope that the Germans might try something with the few ships they had and the barges they'd converted into troop carriers. Well, now you put it like that, it all seems quite ruthless rather than plucky. Yes. 
The Battle of Britain is also notable for who else took part in it. French, Czech, Polish pilots, volunteer Americans, men from all over the British Empire too. Sikhs, Canadians, the lot. It was all hands to the pumps once it had been explained to everyone what that meant. Ah, that's grand. I like this bit. I can tweet about this. The Battle of Britain kept Britain in the war. It showed the USA that Britain wasn't done and persuaded President Roosevelt that the US should provide weapons to the UK in its role as the arsenal of democracy. It also helped Hitler make up his mind about his next big decision, which was, of course, most critical event of all, number five, Operation Barbarossa. Hitler dumps Stalin. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 